really our optimism is not in what's happening in the world around us, which may go well or it may go poorly, but our optimism is because we have faith in Christ Jesus and we know that we are saved and we know that even if the worst of all things happens here in the temporal space, that we have victory in Christ Jesus. Uh, Well, that's Molly Hemingway with some great insights into the hope Christians can have in Jesus, no matter what is going on in this culture. And there's a lot going on. Welcome to Refocus with Jim Daly, a podcast production from Focus on the Family. Molly Hemingway is the editor-in-chief of The Federalist and is a well-known political commentator. You probably have seen her on cable news programs, but her family has always come first, and we'll hear more about that from her soon. I really enjoyed our conversation. Molly has some helpful perspectives from her time working with the media and around those on Capitol Hill. She has experience interacting with people who don't subscribe to Christian and conservative values while trying to show them respect. I spoke with her about a myriad of cultural issues, and really at the heart of it is family, not government, and you'll hear that from her. We recorded this in Washington, D.C. a while back, and here's that conversation with Molly Hemingway on Refocus with Jim Daly. Let's start with uh, your background. I mean, you're a Colorado girl. That's where you grew up. I didn't know that until I read a bit of your background. So I grew up in a few different places because my dad (laughs) is a pastor. I was born in Colorado, but my dad was actually a pastor in Wyoming at the time I was born. Almost the same state. (laughs) Yeah, it's a long story about how that happened. But So spent a couple years in Wyoming and then my first 10 years in California. And then we moved back to Colorado. And it was just a wonderful place to grow up. So after you graduated, uh, you went off to where? University of Colorado. Didn't go off anywhere. I stayed right there. In, <laughs> in Boulder. In Denver, and I studied economics. Okay, great. So That's a good thought, school. I thought I was going into a life of being an economist, not a journalist. God may have saved you there, the life of an economist. <laughs> yeah, it seemed exciting at the time, but definitely... Journalism is much more fun. So journalism, you know, for a person of faith, that that's a it can be a dicey profession, a vocation. I mean, there. I think the stat is not good with journalists who believe in God. It's less than five, ten percent. And that might explain why they're so bad at describing doctrinal disputes or covering <laughs> yeah, right. covering churches or other religious bodies. But for me, it was. I actually find that a lot of what I learned as a Christian has helped me in journalism. And we view, in my in my church, I'm Lutheran, we view that you serve God by serving your neighbor. And so if you can cover an event and describe what happened accurately and fairly and honestly for people who aren't able to be there, you're serving God by serving others. And so it's a really great line of work, I think. Let me ask you this uh, t- totally before we get into the journalism and the life of D.C. and you know your appearances on cable news and all those things. Growing up in a pastor's home, how did it work for you? I mean, pastors would be glad if their daughters and sons grew up to be like you. Sometimes that doesn't happen. Yeah, I'm I'm acutely aware that it is a difficult thing to be in a pastor's family, and I think that's particularly true for pastor's wives. But I was blessed to have just wonderful parents who were very balanced in how they raised us. My siblings and I are all still in the church and very active in the church. And 
sometimes I'll talk to them like, what did you do to make it that way? And they say, it's just a gift from God. And I understand that. I also think they did a very nice job of, we were at church all the time, as any pastor's family understands, you're just kind of there all the time. But my parents were also very good about not being, you know, we, we lived in the world as well, and they encouraged that in how, in how we grew up. And so I think nothing was ever particularly shocking. We were encouraged to ask questions, to dispute things. They always told us, if you find something better, let us know, and we'll all go there together. <laughs> and so we, we kind of felt free to study and look, wow. and we, and it was just, I'm very, my parents are wonderful, and I'm very appreciative. Well, I love that, and I think the, the key term you use there is balance, and that's one of the things I've always been concerned about in the Christian household is if we go too strongly, too far, we expect our kids to be perfect, let's say, the damage that can be done there over time. It's not healthy. you got to let your kids be kids. you got to let them make mistakes. Those things are going to happen, and then love them through it, Right. which sounds like your mom and dad did. And my dad in particular was very good at emulating or he you know he showed us forgiveness we messed up all the time i i in particular <laughs> give my parents a run. Order? i'm the youngest okay, and oh, definitely yeah, yeah. definitely uh yeah my parents i remember when i graduated high school you could buy an advertisement for your graduating senior in the yearbook and everyone else's parents did like we love you so much we're so proud of you and my parents said uh you've certainly made life challenging yeah <laughs> so that was what kind of so adolescent you strengthen their was. faith <laughs> <laughs> that was your mission. Yeah. Um, but we're all we're all still very close, and so um, I think forgiveness is really important. You know, it was it's that combination of the law, where you understand that there are things that we are to do, and the gospel, and we are forgiven our many sins. I think that's a great way to parent. Actually, um, speaking of that, you and your husband Mark. Uh, Talk about sustaining a healthy marriage. You know, so often we hear from physicians or attorneys at Focus on the Family where, you know, our particular vocation puts a lot of stress on our family. So we're in this niche. And I, I get that, but actually the problems are right across the board similar. It's marital strife, it's sexual issues, it's finances, and believe me, it's generally the same in all households, no matter your vocation. But there is seemingly odd pressures for someone working in D.C., a journalist like yourself. Every hour is you got to respond to what's happening in the world, what's happening in the city. How do you and Mark manage time demands and family and those things? And mostly I think it's just something you really have to focus on. Um, because <laughs> <I like that. laughs> uh, Because it's not something that just happens. And my husband and I are blessed to have a wonderful marriage. And things that work for us, we prioritize our church life over everything. So that's the first part of our week. We time it around going to church, going to scripture study. And we have services multiple times a week, so we add those other ones in as well. Our children are instructed in religious schools and always have been. And so that's the priority. And then everything else fills in after that. My husband and I are both also blessed to be able to work from home, which I know is such a luxury. There's a, actually a downside to that, which is we're working <laughs> we're working all the time, like morning, noon, and right. night. Okay, yeah, you never but, have a separation. But it has made it great for us to be around our children, be there for them. And because we both do work a lot, having that home base enables us to be with our children as much as possible. Sure. So How old are the kids? They are 13 and 14. Wow. Yeah, that's active time, too. It is. My sister told me, my sister <laughs> has older children, and she told me that 
babies take a lot of time, but teenagers take a lot of time too. And I definitely see it's just like a totally different type of time, but I'm enjoying it. And yeah. uh, it's, it's good. Great. And the more time you can give them right now, the better. Right. They'll be healthier for it. So let's uh, transition into the political environment, those things. Um, you mentioned something that Senator Lankford and I have talked about, and he says it this way, um, that government gets stronger when family becomes weaker. And that just is the formula. And so some in government work toward, even maybe unconsciously, in order to strengthen the hand of government toward the deconstruction of healthy families. Let me give you a data point, and then you can bounce off it. I was looking at some statistics the other day. In 1960, 48% of households were made up of biological mom and dad and their kids, 48%. Today, it's 22%. So if you're on the side of deconstruct the nuclear family, you're halfway there. But speak to that idea of power going to government to compensate for the lack of a father, lack of a mother. Yeah, I've, I've said before, I think you can have a culture of marriage or you can have a culture of government. And I remember, for me, it was made really clear when I think it was President Obama was running for re-election and he had this um, campaign strategy of talking about the life of Julia. And it showed cartoons of this woman, Julia, and how government took care of her throughout her life. And it even included that she had a child and at no point was there a husband in this picture. Mm -hmm, I remember that. And when there is no intact family in the picture, of course you need government to take care of all these things. And people haven't thought through how, you know, the difference between having a safety net for those people who are in a tough situation and don't have good family support systems versus making that the norm. And pretending that these things are value neutral is is ridiculous. There are so many follow-on effects to not having the family unit be the basic unit of our society that guides us all. Whether it's, you know, when you look at children who are raised in non-intact families, they have a higher uh, propensity to be poor, to not graduate high school, to, they, to themselves have children out of wedlock, to go to prison, you know, not have uh, good earning potential, which then affects their ability to form a family. And all of these things follow on not having been raised in a family with a mother and a father together working. Yeah. And um, it's not to say you can't rise. I came from a single parent mom. I mean, you can achieve. It's a little harder. You got to do things more, perhaps a little deeper, a little stronger, get through college, for example, with not a lot of debt would be a goal. But the, but I want to make sure it's predictive modeling. So that's the key it's, thing. And, and it's really about like the norm you're setting. But there's also this other thing too, which is as Christians, if we see people who are in family, even if, even if you don't see what's going on, every family can use support Absolutely. in the community. And you should be thinking about ways to help out single parents or those who are, you know, again, doing their best with in much more difficult circumstances. Yeah, yeah it's interesting because I was giving a speech the other night. I was mentioning 15 points that the team at Focus had pulled together, 15 attributes of an intact mom and dad family. It's amazing. More likely to graduate from high school, more likely to graduate from college, more likely to have uh, financial and, and uh, emotional success in life, less likely to have premarital sex, less likely to do drugs, less likely to become an alcoholic. And I said to this audience, I said, if I could give you that statistically, would you support the family type that that produces? Should government support the family type that that produces? Overwhelmingly, yes. 
oh, it's intact mom and dad families. And we do so little from a policy standpoint. It, we do if, the opposite frequently. Mean, we actually discourage that type of family I mean, formation. We it's punish insanity. people. Yeah. I mean, why, why do you think you're in this town working with people both sides of the aisle? Why don't they really understand policies that support keeping a marriage together? It's the best policy we could provide. So I think on the one hand, you have a group of people on the left who have consciously decided that they viewed the intact family as something that almost lent itself toward fascism. So they were sort of consciously opposed it and tried to deconstruct it and break it down. And then on the other side, you had people who gave lip service to caring about the family, but kind of didn't realize how much you needed to do to shore it up. So for instance, you have, um, you know, I think a lot of people have, have heard the people in the Republican Party talk about the importance of family. And at the same time, a lot of people in the Republican Party were pushing an economic policy that is you know, largely great, which is free market economics. It does, in fact, help people the world over the more you have markets that are free to um, for people to engage Right, lifts all the boats. It's also true that a lot of what was claimed to be free market economics was actually just outsourcing of jobs to other countries in a way that turns out to have not just been bad for our national security, like we can't make our own, we can't make some of our own stuff, whether it's baby formula quickly yeah, or um, <laughs> or weaponry or things like that, but also just completely hollowed out the ability of men to form families with jobs that didn't require, you know, much advanced education that they maybe weren't inclined toward. And so we didn't have people reacting against this intentional destruction with thoughtful policymaking. They just kind of took comfort in buzzwords and cliches about free market, and they didn't think through what the consequences were. No, that's good. You, you have talked about the marriage gap. Um, explain what the marriage gap is and why some hope to maintain this gap because it's beneficial to their agenda. Right. So women, it's really interesting how demographics have changed with our political parties. Like right now, the Republican Party is a much more multiracial working class party than it had been for decades. Uh, at the same time, you have had this massive change in the base of the Democrat Party, which is largely women, you know, college-educated women who are single is one of their primary bases, uh, or they form a big part of their base. And this is really interesting. If you're married, I mean, I can't remember exactly what all the statistics are on this, but again, if you're a married woman, you're much more likely to vote Republican than mm -hmm. if you're a single woman, you're much more likely to vote as a Democrat. Um, and this is why all of these policies come into play, because you have parties then that are trying to appeal to their base, and that can actually perpetuate things like a marriage gap. Because if you know that single women are going to vote for you, it's in your interest to have as many single women as possible. Uh, because once they become married and have kids, you lose them as a voter, or you're more likely to lose them as a voter. It can affect your policymaking. I personally do not believe that the policies that perpetuate undesired singleness in women are good for women. Mm. And it would be great to have, frankly, both parties caring about how to serve women and their important role in family formation. Yeah. We, we did a show long ago, a program, a uh, film called Family Project. And there was a woman that we featured in there. Her name was Frederica Matthew Green. You may know her, but she said something that 
you may have already heard, but it really got my attention because she was talking about the feminist movement, which she was a part of in the 60s and 70s. And then she had a change of heart. And she said, you know, the women that had that feminist bent were thinking, at least I have autonomy, when what they really had was abandonment. So you, you look at what abortion has done to delink men to the act of sex and having a baby, meaning get married, you raise that child together, which was the old-fashioned word. But so much of the science, like abortion and uh, the pill and other things that have come into vogue since the 60s, Oh, it's fascinating. There's, there have been papers economists have written on the paradox of declining female happiness. So you have this era where women are obtaining all these things that we're told are going to make women much happier, and yet decade after decade they're showing much less happiness than their male counterparts. So as women uh, go into the workforce, they report that they themselves, even though that's something that was supposedly this great feminist objective and victory, they report that they just aren't so happy, whereas men who get to do more work at home, which they never got to do when they were fully responsible for the, the household earnings, they report increased happiness. And yeah. so, uh, and then nobody goes back and reflects like, wait, this was designed to make women happier. In fact, it's making women less happy. Should we have changes in policy related to that? But well, it would be good if they did. And the question is, you know, all this policy making to try to tinker with what we call God's natural law doesn't mean we don't share in household responsibilities. That's not what I'm getting at. I'm talking about just generally what we experienced in this country for so many centuries, you know, that men go out and provide, and women generally will um, help raise the kids. And now I know a lot of that is mixed, but there were some benefits from that. My dad used to say that he thought women should stay at home, but that he thought men should stay at home too. Yeah, I like that. This idea being that that the home is a really important thing for culture and for society to thrive. And we have so devalued home life. Like if you survey women, they care a great deal about having flexible schedules. Not every woman wants to be exclusively in the home. And, you know, you look throughout history, including biblical history, women were engaged in uh, work that was not just raising and rearing children. And women report that they want these types of things. And yet so many people who dominate our conversation, whether that's in the media or in DC and politics, they act like, I don't know, they act like it's Gloria Steinem in the 70s and every woman wants to be in a corner office with no children and no, you know, husband optional in New York City. That just does not reflect what women actually report that they want. In my conversation with Molly, I asked her about the pro-life movement and what the landscape looks like across the country now that Roe versus Wade has been overturned. I asked her, where do we go from here in this country when about half the states are now aggressively trying to protect and even expand abortion and others are moving toward greater restriction? And what's interesting about that is some of those laws that are restricting the ending of unborn life in the womb were passed before Roe. Some of them have been done afterwards in in anticipation that there might be an overturning. And there's so much more we know now about unborn human life in the womb, so many more opportunities to protect it, Um, so much more we know. Like, the, the jurisprudence that guided Roe was just so faulty and so ridiculous and based on fraudulent scientific understandings. And so there's a lot of work to be done 
legislatively. There's also just a lot of work to be done. It is true that restricting abortion restricts the number of abortions. That stands to reason. It does happen. And it also means that there's a lot of work to be done in terms of caring for women and our children and supporting them as they need, encouraging marriage, you know, all these things. When abortion was made legal throughout the land, people were promised a lot of liberation and happiness. And it's not just women who report declining happiness affiliated with their fertility. It's also like men have much less earning potential. It has not been, it has not worked out great. There is an, there is a natural thing that happens when people understand how sex works and how, um, you know, the role that male and female play in this and the beauty of forming a family. And all of that has been rent asunder, not just by Roe v. Wade, but also through, you know, the role birth control has played. And so, again, if you want people happy, family formation has a lot to do with happiness. And not just family formation, but family strengthening. And that is ongoing work. So regardless of what you think about legislative action, I really hope people are thinking about how to support their own marriages and families and their neighbors. Always the right place to look. You were one of the early journalists that covered the Gosnell case, and I think that was Philadelphia, correct? Yeah, that was the late-term abortionist who was found out because there was actually an investigation into illicit drug sales out of his clinic. And it turned out when he was raided for some of that, they discovered this horrific... It's called like House of Horrors is how the grand jury report described it. Um, A filthy, disgusting clinic where women and children were being killed. He delivered children and killed them. They were way past what the law permitted in Pennsylvania. And he, you know, had animals living in the clinic. He had he had refuse in the hallways so that when there were problems, like if a woman needed medical care, she couldn't be evacuated out of the hallway. It was just a horrible, horrible situation. And normally when you're dealing with a serial killer who is eccentric and has this like very big body count and he had kept trophies of some of his victims, like he would keep the, you know, the feet of some of the children that he killed. Normally that would be a massive story in our corporate media. And because he was this abortionist hero for a lot of late-term abortion um, fans, they just kind of suppressed the story. And what I did was worked to make sure that they would have to cover it. Mm. And if you ever uh, had a discussion sitting down with some of those people in corporate media and asked them over dinner or something, why? What what do you think they would say or what did they say to you? So at the time that I did that, I was working for a place where we really emphasized not personalizing bad journalism because it's not just a reporter who's involved, but their editor and you know, there's a whole group of people involved. So don't just personalize it. But what I found effective was actually to personally ask them. I would tally up the dozens of stories they'd written pushing the pro-abortion agenda. You know, at that time, that was after a Senate candidate had made a comment that people made a lot of hay out of when um, the Susan G. Komen Foundation was trying to stop funding Planned Parenthood. And I think it was around the time of Wendy Davis, too. So I'd, like, add up the total of stories they'd done pushing this these, like, pro-abortion propaganda campaigns and say, you know, you wrote 86 stories on this. Why have you done zero on Gosnell, this doctor? And so I found by being particular and specific, it kind of 
prick the conscience of some of these people, and they would respond mm. to explain why they were covering up this story. Yeah. And some of them even admitted that they were wrong. And, you know, even like the editors of some of these publications said, well, it wasn't that we were trying to cover it up. We just didn't know about it, which really speaks to how one-sided many of these newsrooms are. You know, the Washington Post editor said, we just didn't know about it. Now, if you were, if you even knew a pro-lifer, you knew that they were following this case mm -hmm. and they wanted to have a lot of journalism done about it. So the Washington Post was essentially saying, not only do we not hire any pro-lifers, we don't talk to any pro-lifers. And that's not surprising now. You actually realize that's the situation with much of corporate media. Um, but it was, I think, a big moment for people waking up and realizing what a bad situation we're in with our media. Yeah, I, I so appreciate that. I think your observation is true. It seems like a slippery slope that years ago when Gosnell occurred, that would be absolutely true. They just didn't weren't aware. Now it looks a little more intentional, like they on purpose look the other way. Yeah, they're engaged in many campaigns to – it almost seems more like instead of having media operations, we have info operations. Mm. They decide what the narrative is going to be, and then they work backwards yeah. from there. Yeah. When you look at the woke culture and what's happened in Loudoun County, Virginia, and uh, the election of Governor Yonkin, and, and it just seems there's a mama bear awakening, uh, dads too, I'm sure, with – what's going on in schools. Um, describe what you've seen in that environment with woke culture being taught in public schools. So my husband's on the board of our Lutheran school, and, okay. and my mother was a government school teacher in Colorado for many decades. And I care so much about education that I'm a little bit appalled at how it took COVID and shutting down schools and Zooms for people to realize what their children were being taught. I think there's this naivete that mm -hmm. nearly every parent seems to have where they're like, oh, yeah, I've heard bad things, but our school is okay. No, your school's not okay either. And you really need to be aware of what's being taught curriculum-wise. But there definitely has been this minor awakening of people realizing, oh, my kid is being taught to hate their family or their country. They're being taught this like really disgusting racism that they're either a victim or they're an oppressor. Um, and it's built into their curriculum in ways that completely undermine what I think most normal Americans want their children to be taught. And it's good that there is that awakening. And it's good that people are caring more about education. I think there's an additional thing there that's really good, which is for too long, politicians have just been nervous about fighting back against some of the deep rot that's in our culture. They're actually willing to take the fight to these people and make it difficult to undermine the country, the family, the state. Um, and you ha that's like the least that these politicians should be doing, given yeah. the damage that is wrought. I would agree. I mean, I think it's self-evident. Let me ask you specifically about um, LGBT politics. I mean, that's a very forceful... Uh, voice in the country, and they have redefined so many things, um, marriage being one of them. But that idea that traditional marriage should be questioned because monogamy is really an old-fashioned thing, and uh, there's other ways to do relationship. I'm saying this all tongue-in-cheek. But how is a uh, deconstruction of commitment in marriage, commitment to fidelity, as they deconstruct that, what's the long-term effect for not just uh, homosexual marriage, but heterosexual marriage, too? Oh, my goodness. I mean, I've written a lot about this, and it's a big topic. I think one of the things people didn't 
think through as much as they should have, and probably your listeners were thinking through this, was how redefining marriage away from an understanding of it being built around um, it being built around procreation, like the reason why we privilege the relationship of a man and a woman above all other relationships, and all relationships can be great. Yeah. Um, and and this we is don't not... want to tell anybody who they should love. Well, um, well, but my point being, the reason why we privilege the relationship of one man and one woman in Congress is that it it produces children, and no other relationship does that. The natural working together of man and women will result in children and the formation of a family. That's why government was interested in it. That's why it's a public thing. That's why it matters more than anything else. And when you redefine away from that into uh, same-sex couples or other groupings that don't have that same stability and natural stability mm-hmm. of, the, of the formation of the family, it just has so many follow-along effects. You can't actually teach why you privilege this thing because it no longer is privileged and it no longer makes sense. And the sexual complementarity of that, meaning male and female. So like all all people have systems of their body that they can do on their own, you know, the cardiovascular system or whatever. You don't need someone else to do that. The reproductive system is the only one where it requires someone of the opposite sex to work fully, right? Or to, you know, to reach its natural end. And that's why being male or being female is important. It all relates around this very natural mm. thing. And so when we get rid of that by law, it a lot of things no longer make sense, including just talking about whether you are male or female. And so I think we're seeing the chaos and confusion that comes from that. But the solution, I think, for parents is just to speak really clearly with their children about these things, about what a gift from God it is to be male or a gift from God it is to be female, how those two work together, why they work together, why it is important that that working together happen in marriage and not outside of marriage, all of these things. I I regret that I had to kind of start talking to my kids about it so early, but I think you have to if right. you want to be... Uh, having a bulwark against what's happening in Certainly our society. Certainly ahead of the culture. you got to get there. L- let me ask you uh, in that regard, I, I talked to a Catholic priest who suggested to me that theologically the reason it's under marriage is under such scrutiny, he said, you know, the whole fall of heaven is related to this. And I was like, oh, I'm intrigued. Tell me more. But he said, you know, Lucifer, this he wanted God's image placed into the angels, but God chose to put his image into humanity and he created them male and female, and that the two come together, and the two shall become one flesh. And he said, every day a married couple walking this earth is a stench to Satan, because hmm. it reminds him of God's very spirit, his image walking the earth. I thought, wow, that is profound. Profound, yeah. That's, that, that is a deep understanding of why male and female. We didn't create this. God did to but show us something. I also think that's why marriages and families themselves are under attack because I do think Satan understands that it is um, a powerful force against what he wants. And so uh, there's that saying about like when when Christians build a church, Satan builds a chapel next door. But I think there's there's also that understanding that marriage and family is so strong and effective that evil forces want to tear it down. And you have to kind of almost view your marriage or your family as a it's like a conspiracy where you're where you're fighting against these evil forces and not letting them in. They're not you're not like building up resentment toward each other, and you're not, um, you know, you're just. 
all the tools we're trying to give couples right. every day to focus on the family to have a healthy and good marriage. Uh, let's move to religious liberty real quick. Uh, that seems to be under threat constantly. Uh, again, so many of the things that the nation was built upon are under stress. These values that we talk about, the idea of a strong marriage being a good thing, and that being in question now, the idea that religious liberty is the core liberty, that all liberties kind of flow from that idea of conscience, freedom of conscience, which religious consciousness is, I mean, that's kind of core. What is it you believe? What do you not believe? So why is it so important? If you're talking to someone, a colleague of yours in journalism on the left, how would you convince them that religious liberty is really important? Right. The 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 first freedom that we have uh, and that is so foundational to our country because you really understand that at our founding, what people were wanting was the freedom to pursue truth. And for a lot of people, that was about religious truth, and they did not have this freedom in the places that they came from. Everything else from freedom of speech and assembly and of the press is really rooted in this religious liberty that we have. We believe that in order to pursue truth, you need to be free to study um, and explore and argue these things. And that's why we care about you know, speech and press is because of the more important issue of finding God and understanding God and, um, and your relation to him. So I think our laws are pretty good on religious liberty, but our culture is awful. And uh, you have to practice these things in order to protect them. You know, if you if people aren't practicing freedom of speech, it doesn't matter what the laws are. Mm -hmm. And if they're not practicing their religion, it doesn't matter how strong the laws are on religious liberty. And so I think the best thing to do to fight for religious liberty is, frankly, just to practice your faith. Stand up. Yeah. I think a lot of religious liberty cases are being won because the laws are on the side of religious liberty. And those groups that oppose religious liberty are losing, by and large. So that's true, but it's also true that the cases that have the best success come from individuals, families, and church bodies that really know why they believe what they believe and yeah. they practice it consistently. And so I think some people try to kind of like revert to a religious liberty stronghold as like a last resort. And it's more about, again, like there's so many things about that we need to be fighting for. And I think about these issues with um, like transgender ideology and things like that, where it is a lot, a lot of what's being done under that rubric is an attack on, on religious liberty. But I don't know. I'm just, people need to practice these mm -hmm. things and not just view them as religious liberty issues. They are much more important than just religious well, liberty. Well, and to not be inhibited from practicing those things, right? right? So we we go in the closet, they come out of the closet. Well, so like even what I was talking about with um, natural marriage, a lot of people talk about redefining marriage in terms of religious liberty issues, and it has profound religious liberty implications, but there's also just the truth of what marriage is, mm -hmm. the joining together of man and woman. And so we need to remember those truths and not just that, they, that these are attacks on religious liberty. Yeah, I... I agree entirely. Um, big tech. I'm just knocking off the big ones here. But big tech, it's been egregious. Focus on the family. I mean, we, we had a tweet that we ended up, our account was frozen because we referred to Dr. Levine there in, in Pennsylvania, who is a transgendered man. So he's biologically born a male and believes himself to be a female. 
That is exactly how we said it in the tweet, and they froze our account for that. Yes, this is happening I mean, all over like, the place. This happened to my senior editor, John Davidson, who did exactly yeah. the same thing, described a man as a man, and he is, is suspended off of Twitter. It is horrifying that we live in a space where you're not allowed to speak truth without facing repercussions, and they are going to war against some of the things that are most important in our country in terms of tolerance and freedom of expression, and they are a huge threat to the body politic. They meddle in elections constantly. They deplatform effective voices. They control the way you're allowed to talk about things. It is, it is a serious threat. I, I can only pray that people understand that this is direct assault on the, on the republic and that massive things need to happen. I did hear Cheng Guanchang, the the um, Christian dissident pro-life activist he, who received a Bradley Prize recently, and he was asked, like, what gives him hope? And he actually said that Elon Musk gives him hope. And mm-hmm. it's such a weird thing because mm-hmm. Elon Musk is kind of a weird dude, but I think a lot of people have realized, like, we live in this age of oligarchs, and all of the oligarchs are on one side, and there's this, like, one oligarch who's trying to battle them. And so it's a very interesting, weird moment we're in, and even where we take where we take our cues for hope. But it, I do think a lot of people are starting to rebel against this authoritarian control that the left has, and even just like the hatred that they're visiting upon the land. Um, a lot of people are just starting to fight back. Molly, in that regard, let's bring it down from the big tech oligarchs like we're talking about, Elon Musk now buying Twitter and the like, but just how we treat each other on social media platforms. It is one really good statement followed by horrific responses, people irritated, people that aren't experts in certain areas, all of a sudden they're pummeling you. Um, I had a, a colleague of mine who adopted three kids and he went out on adoption day and talked about adopting three kids. And people begin to say, look at the clothing. Can't you dress them better? You're not a good parent. You're going, what, what are you talking about? They were dressed fine, by the way. But it was just a way to pick on them. And that is, unfortunately, the nature of social media. So why do we do oh, it? Oh, it's a horrible situation <laughs> out there. I'm of mixed minds. Like I sometimes dream that we could just get rid of all social media and the world would be a much nicer place. And like, it would be. It's actually interesting. I was reading something about how, like, there's a limit to how many people humans can interact with before they kind of lose track of norms. Yeah. And so there's an argument to be had that congregations, for instance, like around 200 would be like a great maximum number. Because once you get beyond that, you kind of can't form the relationships with them as effectively as you might want. And so social media, we're all behaving poorly on social media because there aren't the normal things. Like You don't want people punched in the face, but in the real world, you say something really horrible, you might get punched in the face. You know, it's like a real limiting principle to how bad you can be. But you on social media can be anonymous and you can say just the most vile things. I want to give a great trick that someone gave me on how to not get angry when people are horrible to you. Excellent. So someone was being really horrible to me, just horrible. I mean, behaving, he was a reporter and he he hated me for some reason. And this woman who saw what was going on on social media sent me a private note. And she said, just so you know, I think his wife has cancer. Mm. And I was like, oh, ah, oh, of course. Okay. So he can't be mad at home because he's trying to keep everything together. And he's just like focused his ire on me. 
I can pray for him, right? Like that's the least I can do. I'm not going to worry about it. And I pray that if I ever have a spouse who has cancer, I won't take it out on other people, whatever. So a couple years later, someone else was being really horrible to me on social media. And I get a note from the same lady and she says, just so you know, I think his wife has cancer. And I was like, oh, neither of these people's wives have cancer, but that's going to be my trick to just get me to pray for someone because they have something going on, clearly. They're behaving horribly. Mm. So when people are horrible to you, just think the equivalent of their wife has cancer and just start praying for them Mm. and not taking it personally because they need your prayers no matter what. It's interesting because I think if you were to follow them through their their growing up years, et cetera, you probably would find pretty bad situations that form them into the people they are. Even if they just need prayers so that they can learn how to behave better, it's good. And then you, of course, yourself, you need prayers for whatever bad thing you're doing at the time, too. But uh, it is still important for Christians to be involved in social media, I think, if they're able to, because it is the public square. It is the place by which ideas get debated. And when you don't express basic truths, it gives a false impression that error has a majority viewpoint that it might not have. One of the things I want to encourage here on Refocus is for us all to take a deep breath and learn to express ourselves respectfully having civil conversations with those who disagree with us. Scripture tells us to love our neighbors and even our enemies, and I don't uh, see how we can do that by shouting at them or making ugly comments about them. In fact, one of my great concerns is that people will resort to threats or even violence as a means of protest. I asked Molly uh, to weigh in on that. No, I'm really worried about that topic. I abhor political violence, and you know it's been a main function of much of the left going back to the 60s, uh, the use of political violence to advance social change, whether that's bombings or protests or whatever. We pay so much attention to the January 6th riot, which took place like one day from largely members of the right, and I abhor that as well. Uh, I don't I don't believe in it. Um, I'm just struck by how, you know, I, I wrote a book on the Kavanaugh confirmation with Carrie Severino, and much of what was engaged in there was planned political violence, whether it was like getting arrested in to disrupt the, the confirmation hearing, seizing buildings, besieging the Supreme Court, um, threats of violence against justices, these types of things. We saw the summer of riots in 2020, where dozens of people were murdered and entire city centers were lit aflame and there were riots and it was obviously very coordinated. Um, And it has been, unfortunately, an effective tool for the left. It's not as effective of a tool for the right, like anyone who participated in the riot is having their lives completely destroyed. Um, That doesn't happen with the left. You might not even get arrested. Uh, So we have this problem where we have two systems of justice to benefit political allies and to harm political um, opponents. But, and and so long as we have that, I think you'll see political violence continue. But we should abhor all of that and we should work together as people to... Be consistent. I think what you're describing, unfortunately, is kind of like a banana republic. Those are the things that happen in governments that are weak and nations that don't have the great foundations that we have. So 
hopefully those foundations that we have are strong enough to get through a season of instability like this. Well, and, you know, we developed a system of rule of law slowly over time to protect people, and we have been running away from it. And these uneven standards of justice, or even like delays of justice, are a big threat to the republic and and civil order. But again, things are bad, particularly yeah. with our system of justice. But it's also true that things have been bad throughout the history of the Christian church, and that we need to not rely on things being great in the particular country we're in. We're still in a better country than the vast majority of countries that have existed throughout throughout time and history. And we work to improve it, and we understand that our faith is not in how, you know, we might, we might for the rest of our lives be in under uneven standards of yeah. justice, but that doesn't affect us in the long term. Yeah, that's good. Molly, this has been great. I mean, we've covered a lot of territory here, but you've done it so well. And I appreciate the time with you and getting your insight as a journalist, as a Coloradan uh, here in D.C., working away, trying to do the right thing in journalism, bring truth to light, right? Yes. Well, thank you. And I appreciate all the good work that you do as well. Keep up the good fight. Thanks. Molly Hemingway continues to do such good work engaging with the secular culture as a journalist and representing her faith so well. I loved what she shared about living out the Christian faith and how it's transformational in the culture. Uh, We as Christians need to be more intentional with orthopraxy or practicing a biblical worldview as well as talking about the Christian worldview. Uh, God wants us to be salt and light in the culture, speaking God's truth and being a voice of reason. And that's so desperately needed today. Uh, Like Molly said, one of the ways we can do that is by building up our families. And we have so many resources here at Focus on the Family to help you do just that. In the book of Luke, Jesus said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. That's so hard, but it's what the Lord has instructed us to do. We're called to do the same in conversations with people who are hostile toward the truth of Christ. Let me share a quick story. Probably the most illustrative story I could pull out is a woman by the name of Virginia Prodan, who came from Romania. Uh, The dictator at the time, Ceausescu, had sent assassins to kill her, and one of those assassins brought a gun into her office, pointed it at her, and she said, can I share the gospel with you? What was so captivating about that story is she said inside she was shaking. She felt the blood rush out of her. And this man stood there, and as she began to share the gospel, which had to come from the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, he began to relax and set the gun down and started nodding in agreement with her as she talked about who Jesus is and what he had come to do for all of us to set us free from sin. I mean, that is a powerful story of having the courage in the moment to speak to your enemy. Talk about the enemy. This person's there to kill you. And she had the spiritual presence of mind not to worry about her own outcome, but to know that sharing the word of truth, the word of God, would be the way to go and that God would be in control of her circumstances. Well, that man later became a pastor and came to her here in the United States after she uh, was living in Texas and met with her and thanked her for changing his life from an assassin to a believer in Christ. How about that outcome? 
If you appreciate conversations like this one on Refocus, uh, please support our efforts on the podcast. We're supported by your gifts, which help us to spread the gospel of Jesus and equip you and those around you through you. (laughs) And your donation will help us to create uh, more episodes like this one and provide follow-up resources. Make a gift of any amount, and I'll send you a copy of my book, Refocus, Living a Life That Reflects God's Heart. I also want to encourage you to check out The Daily Citizen. It keeps you informed on important stories that affect you and your family each and every day and helps you to understand the news from a biblical viewpoint. I've provided a link to find out more. All right, let's uh, get into the inbox segment now where I answer your questions related to the topics we cover. Here's a voicemail from Kelly. Hi, Jim. I was just wondering your opinion on how you believe Christians should balance their faith with their duty to vote and participate in politics. Kelly, let me say this. You know, one of the great benefits of living in a democracy is that we have the right to vote. We have the right to express ourselves. It's very different than living in the Roman Empire or under some kind of authoritarian rule like they have in China or other countries. So for us, it would be a shame not to participate, in my opinion, and to influence. We have that ability. I think oftentimes in the culture, they try to shame Christians into staying out of politics. But let me tell you, the framers of this Constitution were very deep into the truths of Scripture. Uh, They may not have all been Christians, but they certainly relied on the wisdom of the Bible to frame this constitutional democracy. So I would say engage, persuade, and influence all in the spirit of truth and love. And if you have a question for me, please go click on the tab on the right side of the page that says leave a voicemail. And if I use your question on the podcast, I'll say thank you by sending you a copy of my book, Refocus. Also, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Refocus with Jim Daly. We could really use your support to spread the word. Please help us grow by taking the time to give us a rating and comment. Like us, listen, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Next time on Refocus, just in time for Independence Day, I'll have a fascinating conversation with our own Tim Gagline, who represents Focus on the Family in Washington, D.C. He'll talk about the importance of recognizing the spiritual foundations of America and tell us about some of his personal interactions, sharing Christ, and a biblical worldview in secular spaces. That's on the next Refocus with Jim Daly. It can be challenging to inspire your community to see life the way God sees it. So what's the solution? Well, on June 15th, Focus on the Family is hosting Sea Life 24. And no matter where you are or who you are, you can be a part of this free event with speakers like Ben and Kirsten Watson and real stories about choosing life. Sea Life 24 will inspire you to translate your faith into action. Register today at sealife24.org.